0: And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that, um, even through, through the uh, sermon. I'll give you some, uh, I guess, windows into something of our ministry. But um, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And I'll read from uh, verses 51 to 56, if you want to follow along. Luke chapter 9, verses beginning verse 51. I'm reading from the New In- International Version. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would teach us. This is your word, and your word is truth, and your truth will set us free. And we pray that it will set us free from the sin that remains, the sin that we struggle with, that we might lay hold of him who has laid hold of us by grace. Lord Jesus, magnify Yourself this morning once again. Amen. Some years ago, many years ago, I was listening to, when well, we were at stateside, I was listening to a radio program, a report from Operation Rescue, this uh, pro-life Christian activist organization. And what caught my attention was that th- the reporter was talking about a group of uh, pro-lifers in front of a clinic that obviously they were they were uh, performing abortions. And so here's this pro-life group in front of this clinic, but then what really got my attention was there was another group. There was a, a group of protesters protesting the pro-lifers. And what was interesting is, I remember this from years back, is that you could hear a little bit of the audio uh, from the reporter that these protesters who were protesting the pro-lifers they were berating the pro-lifers they were it was violent language and expressing rage against these this pro-life group there and this is what I want you to know my reaction I was peeved and I was angry I was by myself, and I prayed that God would destroy those people who supported the abortion of babies. I'm going to give you a window into my heart. I prayed that God would wipe them out. I prayed that God would execute his judgment, because these people dishonored and insult God and his creation And I said, God, send them to hell. After I said that, I asked myself, did I really just say that? I mean, is this right? I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to do that. I confess to you, I am a pastor, I am a missionary, I am a sinner as well. I am not what I once used to be, and that by God's grace. But I am not yet what I will be when I am with my Savior face to face. I can come here this morning and tell you wonderful stories of conversions. How God has used us in proclaiming the gospel and seeing people both in Spain and on the border come to faith in Christ. I can tell you stories of how the gospel has been transforming lives, sustaining people. You know, and you love to hear those stories, and I love to tell them, and I'll share them with you after the service. But today, this morning, what I'd like to do is give you a glimpse of stories that are not told, of stories of people who proclaim the gospel but also struggle with sin. Because that's all of us, is it not the case? And you know what it's like, don't you, to be rejected. You've been rejected by friends, you've been rejected by family, you've been rejected by neighbors, you build relationships with people over a period of years thinking, well, I just want to love them. And you're praying for the opportunity to share the gospel. You share the gospel and they say, "I look, I really don't want the gospel. And sometimes it's hard to take. And you just feel like, whoa, was all this in vain? No, it wasn't, but it feels that way. How do you handle rejection? How do you handle when somebody rebuffs you when you share the gospel? And you say, well, nobody, you know, rebuffs me. Well, is that because you don't share the gospel? Or just because you're just made out of a different material than I am, which is very possible. And sometimes you share the gospel, you're trying to love your neighbor who's not a Christian, you're trying to serve them, and then they reject you, and your reaction could be one of withdrawal. You isolate yourself if it happens too often, or you become apathetic, and you become callous, and you go, what's the use? Or sometimes... You get angry, like I did. But I find great consolation. I wasn't the only one that gets angry. So did James and John. You see, Jesus and the disciples were traveling, I'm going to go through the Samaritan village, and they rejected Jesus. And so James and John, in turn, express what the disciples are perhaps feeling. They reject the Samaritans. You know? And I can identify with that. I can identify with that. I'm just going to give them back what they gave me. You ever feel that? And Maybe you've never said what I said on that particular day where you said, go to hell. But have you ever, in your heart of hearts, desired it? I think this is here in the Bible because it's like a mirror. mirror, It's a mirror with a magnifying glass and it just points out what's in our hearts and what's in the heart of disciples of Jesus Christ. It exposes our hearts. It exposes the heart of people who struggle. Yes, we are in Christ. Yes, sin doesn't reign, but it remains in us and we're struggling with that still. And I'm learning even as a pastor, even as a missionary, the gospel is yet to work in more deeply in my life. Because I understand this is not a game. This is reality. And here comes the scripture and here comes this passage particularly and exposes my heart. And it makes me and causes me to understand why is it I respond with so little mercy and so little kindness to people who are unkind. That's not my Savior's way. So what prompted James and John to respond this way? What prompted me to respond that way that particular day? Well, let me, let's look at a little bit of the historical background. Jesus is traveling through Samaria en route to Jerusalem. And as you know, there's this uh, this bitter rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans, right? I I like to compare it to the rivalry that uh, an illegal Mexican uh, would feel as they're traveling through Arizona. (laughs) And if you know anything of what's going on in Arizona, uh, you you know the tension that's there. And so you can imagine an illegal Mexican immigrant traveling through Arizona, and it is just crisp and filled with strife. And so here are these uh, Jesus and his disciples being Jews are going to go through the Samaritan village. And, uh, and what do what the Jews think? You know, they, what do they think about the Samaritans? They were, they were racial half-breeds, right? Racial half-breeds because they had intermarried with foreigners who had occupied the land years before when they were conquered by the Assyrians, so ethnically they weren't pure, they weren't pure Jews, but neither were they pure religiously. See, the Samaritans had developed their own religious heritage based on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't accept the other books of the Hebrew Bible as canonical. And You know, the Samaritans built this rival temple, on Mount Gerizim, and then they make things worse, there was a Jew hundreds of years later by James name of John Hyrcanus who went and destroyed that temple, the Samaritan temple. And so here's Jesus. You gotta imagine this scenario, this tension. And Jesus and his disciples are approaching one of these Samaritan villages. And because there's a large group of them, they make this Jesus sends out messengers to make some pre-arrangements of a lodging. And they get to the village. I guess the messengers get to the village, and uh, And they say, oh, Jesus, Jews, you guys heading to Jerusalem? Well, you're not welcome here. No place for you here. Move on. In verse 53, it tells us, the people would not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And maybe because of that ethnic rivalry, but also because, you know, maybe by them understanding Jesus going to Jerusalem, it was a slam, an indirect slam against their alternative faith. But whatever the case was, verse 54 is telling, isn't it? In reaction, James and John asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Do you hear what they're saying? You hear what they, they want to pray? Lord, let us call, let us pray. And, and we're ready just to just wipe them out. These idiotic hotheads, they're not very Christian, are they? oh but don't you miss it these are jesus's closest disciples so so what prompted this vindictive spirit if you recall the same chapter what happens jesus is transfigured so so here's james and john and peter and they go with jesus to the mountain transfiguration and there before their eyes, they see something of the glory of the Savior. And who is with Jesus? Elijah and Moses. So perhaps the disciples are thinking about Elijah. Right? And so they have something very clear. Here. So here's Jesus, who's greater than Elijah, who's greater than Moses. And so perhaps they're thinking in their mind, Oh yes, we remember Elijah and what he did in 2 Kings chapter 1. Let me tell you a little bit about the story. 2 Kings chapter 1, a great story. See, King Ahaziah, he had been seriously injured, and he, and he wanted to find out how his health was going to go. And so in, but instead of consulting with one of the prophets of God, he consults with one of the prophets of Baal, Baal-zebub. And he sends messengers out to this, to this Baal, this pagan god. Right? And on the way, these messengers encounter Elijah, and Elijah says to them basically, is there no God in Israel that you have to go and consult to Baal? He says, go back and you tell King Azariah that he's going to die. So they go back and they tell King Azariah he's going to die. Boy, he didn't like that news. And so he sends out a captain with 50 soldiers. He says, you go out and you get the prophet Elijah. And so they find Elijah. He's up on a mountain on a hill. And he, they say to him, man of God, come down from the mountain. And Elijah says, and this happens twice. If I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire fell from heaven and consumed them. Well, like I said, it happened twice. And it was going to happen a third time with another captain and his soldiers, except this third captain was just a little bit more humble and smarter. (laughs) And he asked Elijah, hey, don't smoke me, would you? Don't kill me. So here's James and John. Maybe the, all this is in their mind. They're thinking about what's going on. And, and they understand this, these people, these Samaritan people, are rejecting one who's greater than Elijah. They're rejecting the Messiah. And because they're zealous and they are part of this inner circle of Jesus, they ask the Lord's permission to smoke the Samaritans. And you know, fire oftentimes in the Bible is associated with what? With judgment. Do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire coming down in in those cities. And so, essentially, they're asking for the judgment of God. They rejected you. So, Lord, can we call fire down from heaven so that the judgment would come immediately? Lord, burn their property, burn their marketplace, burn their houses, burn the people. If you've ever been around fire, you know it's a horrible way to die. I was sharing earlier in the Sunday school hour about the Benya family. The Benya family, a family that is a church that we've gotten involved with several years ago. We helped them in the construction of the home because the trailer home, the mobile home in which you were living, caught on fire and it burned down. That occurred about four years ago. And if you were to hear them today tell the story of, and their experience of that fire, and you were to watch them, you would see tears in their eyes. Because the fear, the pain, the suffering, the agony, something is not right with me. Something is not right with James and John. Something is not right when this attitude surfaces, this attitude of revenge and judgment. But how can it be? I suppose there are lots of reasons for this, but let me identify two reasons, two problems. One is a theological problem, and one is a personal problem. First, the theological problem. They misunderstood Jesus' mission. They misunderstood Jesus' mission. Verse 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, or he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. See, everything that Jesus did was according to a divine plan, right? The plan of redemption, including this journey now to Jerusalem. The time for him to go to Jerusalem was predetermined, and now it was the hour. Okay. And Jesus was determined to do the work of his Father. He came to fulfill that mission. And so he knew the time had come for him to go to Jerusalem, and so he sets out resolutely to go to Jerusalem, the very center of Israel's life, and worship. And from Jerusalem, what would happen? What does the scriptures tell us? That from Jerusalem he would be taken up to glory. But before he's taken up to glory, what happens? He must be lifted up on a cross, he must be rejected. He must be despised. He must voluntarily lay down His life. He must be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He'd been telling His disciples about that, but they didn't understand it. In verse 22 of the same chapter, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now you think about this. In your mind's eye, imagine Jesus... He's determined to go to Jerusalem do you see what he's saying he's determined to suffer he's determined to go and walk right in the midst of rejection and beatings and whipping and even death this was his mission and it included rejection and suffering in order to save a people He didn't come to condemn the world. See, the world was already under condemnation. He came to save a people for the Father. But He came to do this through suffering and giving up His life voluntarily. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be rejected. I run from suffering. I don't resolutely set my face to go into suffering, but that's precisely what Jesus did. And if you don't understand this, if you don't understand this part of the mission of Jesus and his work, and how it impacts you, you simply will not know what to do with suffering and rejection when it comes. You will do what I did, and you will start sending people to hell, Because how do you make sense of it? How do you make sense of that rejection and the pain and the suffering that you receive when you go and proclaim the gospel and nobody wants to hear and they despise you? How do you make sense of it? What do you do with it? Unless you have the gospel clear in your mind, unless you understand precisely what Jesus has come to do, you have nowhere to go. And So you lash out. You want to push back. You want to protect yourself. You want to fight back. You want to react with anger, with vengeance, with condemnation. You want to hurt others because they hurt you. And Jesus' mission, when I see it clearly, His suffering, when I see it clearly, compels me to see that my mission, my service to the Lord, may indeed entail suffering and rejection and humiliation, but like my Savior, but in very much in a secondary way, not in a redemptive way, but this is my calling too. And Paul says it like this in Philippians 3.10, that we are to share in the fellowship of his suffering. Not one of your more popular verses, is it? It's painful. It's difficult to handle. But the only way that you respond with grace and humility is you are steeped in the gospel. You look with clarity at what Jesus Christ has done for you. There's a woman in our church who was married. She is not now married. She's divorced. But when she was married, she was a Mexican woman. Live with a man, her husband, who was violent, violent with her, abused her physically, emotionally. And she stayed married to him for a number of years. Well, things just got worse, and uh, he finally left, and he was unfaithful, and um, they put him in jail. She had not seen him for a number of years, perhaps nine years, and Um, they're now uh, in a very different situation in life but he's in a a nursing home he had about six months left to live and she decides she's going to visit him after all that abuse and the pain of the past life she goes in and she goes in with she's telling me she would do this throughout several weeks and months and she would take her Bible and she would read the scriptures to her husband or ex-husband and he would continue to ridicule her and verbally abuse her. And she would come, and she would leave there, and she would call me, and we would talk on the phone, and she's crying, she's tearful, and, and I'm, I'm thinking inside, woman, just don't go back. Don't go back. Don't subject yourself to that. But she would go back week after week after week. Why? What in the world would move somebody to go into the face of rejection and ridicule? but only the gospel, she understood something about sharing and the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. Something that I did not understand. Do you see, how in the world do you do that? Unless the gospel is deeply rooted and growing in you. Do you see what I say? This is no game. This is not a game. I'm learning to serve Jesus in Jesus' way. Not to serve Jesus in my way. And do you know that is painful? That requires dying to self and taking up the cross. They also had a personal problem. They misunderstood their own heart, like I do much of the time. See, James and John, I am almost certain they didn't see their reaction as sinful, but rather righteous, virtuous, full of zeal and faith. I mean, when was the last time you called fire down from heaven? I mean, we call rain down in El Paso. You know, we want it to rain and it never rains. I, mean, we don't, I suppose that means we don't have much faith. But these people thought, hey, look, let's just pray and God will do it. That's a lot of faith. But when they asked to torch a Samaritan city, their request not only betrayed harshness and anger, but something much more lethal self righteousness. They felt smugly superior to these lowly Samaritans, these half-breeds. You see what racism does to you. And so they despise these Samaritans not realizing they were great sinners themselves. Oh yeah, the Samaritans deserved it, but so did they. So do I. We all deserve it, right? That's the wages of sin, is death. But see, self-righteousness blinds us to the truth that we deserve judgment from a holy God. Thousands of people have been murdered, execution style, in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, over the last three years. And I've asked myself, Lord, what would happen if all of a sudden, one day all those people involved in this violence and this murder all these folk involved in the drug cartel what if you just came down and just killed them all instantaneously they're all dead would I rejoice there's a part of me says yes because justice has been done but I asked myself the other question would I rejoice glibly forgetting that I too deserve that same punishment but I've been spared. My sins, even my respectable sins, the ones that I've hidden that none of you know, not even my wife knows, they deserve the condemnation of God. They're offensive to God. But you see, self-righteousness says, oh, my sins, yeah, the They're bad, but they're not as bad as your sins. So where's our hope? Our hope for you and me, we who love the Lord Jesus Christ, we who have the gospel at work in us, we who are being transformed by the gospel, we who go and proclaim the gospel to the people around us, our neighbors, the nations. Where's our hope? Our hope is bound up in seeing ourselves in our calling rightly. Some of you may know this, but for years I, I worked as a social worker in Baltimore City. Social work is a noble profession, so I, need, I don't know if any of you here social workers. A noble profession. But one of the things I learned about myself and social workers at the time is that we are good people out to help people who are in trouble, Right? We have good things that we're going to give to people that you know, are not having good, you know, good things happen in their lives. And so one of the things that I experience as a social worker is here I, are, I encounter a family, whatever it might be, an individual. They have needs. Things are not going well. And I'm come, I come as a good social worker to offer them a way out, another option, some, a, better, a better life. And then they reject it. I go, what's wrong with you? How can you reject this? And then I take it personally. But you know why I take it personally? Because indirectly, I have set myself up as their Savior. I'm going to save their lives. And if I see my ministry, if, I, if you see your ministry, if you see your service to God as that of being a Savior to other people, boy, it's going to hurt. And that's why you reject. You, you, you react the way you do in rejection. My calling, obviously, like your calling, is we're not anybody's Savior, but we point people to the Savior, Jesus Christ. So I need to see myself and my calling rightly, but secondly, I need to see judgment rightly. What I find interesting is Jesus does not correct, nor does he rebuke the Samaritans for their rejection. He rebukes his disciples. Because they failed to understand that their calling wasn't to pronounce judgment, judgment and vengeance belonged to the Lord, but they were to point people to Jesus who would be judged. Jesus would be judged. Jesus would be condemned in the place of his chosen people. and Luke. Chapter 12, a few chapters ahead, verses 49 and 50, Jesus says, he's talking about this judgment, the judgment that he would suffer in the place of his people, and he says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What Jesus is saying here is that the fire of God's judgment and rejection would come down upon him. And he knew that. So it wasn't simply being ridiculed by people. It wasn't simply being nailed to the cross. But that the holy wrath would fall upon him. That the fire of hell would fall upon him. That he would be condemned in the place of his people. And he knew that was coming. He would suffer. He would suffer in the place of the disciples, His chosen disciples, and even chosen Samaritans. See, when we understand that the fires of judgment and wrath should have fallen upon us because of our self-righteousness, but rather they fell on Jesus. When you see with clarity the condemnation and judgment fell on Jesus who bore your sin of racism and your sin of vengeance, and your sin of hatred, and your sin of apathy, and your sin of pride. And then you begin to see things differently. It's only then when the gospel begins to sink in a little more deeply. It's only then you have the ability and the patience to respond with grace. Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5.44? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do you do that? Well, what Paul says in Romans 12.21, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, Verses 24 and following, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. God will not be mocked. Judgment day will come, and unlike what Harold Camping thinks, It wasn't May 21st, and it probably won't be October 21st. But Judgment Day will come. But today is a day of salvation. Today is a day of mercy to all who will receive Christ. helps me to understand Ezekiel 33.11. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Why should I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? Some of you have had your honor, your respect, your peace, something precious to you in your life taken away as you have served the Lord. And the Gospel says, that Jesus more than abundantly supplies everything that's been taken from you. He is your peace. He is your honor. He is your respect. He is your life. Your life is hidden in Christ, united to him. I am learning, and I invite you to learn with me to serve Jesus in His way. In the pain, in the hardship, don't run from it, but go to Christ. You pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we are a needy people. We ask that this very gospel of life. The good news to to us who have been recipients of this wonderful grace. You, by your Spirit, have opened our eyes and our hearts. You've changed our hearts so that we come to see Jesus and that His death was our death. He died the death that we should have died but won't die. And he He lived the life that we should have lived, but we just can't. But we ask that by your Spirit you would so work in us Work your gospel power deeply in us. The truth. May we drink more of this living water so that we might, Lord, have our own thirst quenched, but also be able to proclaim the good news in your way to a world around us that is under condemnation. Lord, would you, just as you freed us from condemnation, but we know that nothing can separate us from you, would you free others, free our neighbors, free our family members who don't believe. Lord, raise up a people that will, by your grace, speak of the glorious good news in Jesus, our Savior. In whose name we pray, amen.